um, let's start the afternoon session off with the sitting. So make, you, make sure you're comfortable. You know, sometimes uh, I see the yawns already. Uh, it can be a, kind of a dullness to uh, the post-lunch fiesta, so we can feel tired or low energy. Um, so if that's the case, don't worry about it. Uh, if you can, not to worry about it. It's normal, natural, happens all the time. Uh, if it happens, you can always open your eyes, um, or you could also do some standing. I've done plenty of standing practice in terms of working with sleepiness. It's an accepted uh, form of practice. It's one of the four postures of mindfulness. You know, there's sitting, walking, standing, and lying down. And the only posture that we're not doing here in the hall is lying down. And I bet you can, bet you know why. Um, <laughs> it's pretty much obvious. Um, so standing is fine. You can just be mindful of the intention to stand and do some standing for even a couple minutes or five minutes. It might interrupt the flow of sleepiness if you're feeling it. Uh, and then you can just mindfully sit back down again. Um, we're going to expand the mindfulness practice. Um, we've been working predominantly with the body, so we're going to continue that work with mindfulness of the body, the first foundation of mindfulness. But um, I'd also like to expand it a little bit, introduce another anchor, another object of mindfulness. But let's start with uh, what's, uh, what we've been working with, was the body, first of all, checking in with the body to see what it feels like. Energy level. Comfortable, not comfortable. You can always adjust your sitting posture. You know, sometimes you're used to sitting maybe 20 minutes at home and sitting a little more, more here today, a little longer sitting. So, you know, again, it's wise effort is relating to the present moment of what your body condition is and adjusting your posture accordingly. I want you to be reasonably comfortable, but also, you know, sitting up relatively straight. So feeling the body and then feel the sitting bones, the contact the region, making contact with the chair or the cushion. Feel those sensations as we make our way into the here and now, exploring it with mindfulness, silent attention, just getting to know in a very intimate way what it feels like to be sitting. Of course, we all know we're sitting, but this is a different level of understanding that or seeing it. It's actually experiencing it, moment-to-momentness of it. And feel the contact with the floor. Bottoms of the feet, lower part of the legs, ankles, feet.
So the touch points, I'll talk more about that later today, tonight. Touch points are the sitting bones, the contact with the floor. Very helpful practice for grounding the attention, bringing it back to the present moment as an antidote to the wandering mind or the mind that goes off into the future or the past. So it's that anchor that we can rest our attention on that will help us sustain the attention in the present. Touch points. And whenever you're ready, you can allow your attention to rest and meet the breathing process as it's unfolding, tip of the nose, movement of the chest, rising and falling of the abdomen, whatever feels the most comfortable for you, whatever you resonate with. I know for many years I worked with the tip of the nose and then it switched over to the chest. So whatever feels right to you, whatever you feel like you can pick up that allows you to relax, yet pay attention. That's where you want to rest your attention. So the breathing sensations are our anchor, some place to keep coming back to. And so let's continue this for the next few minutes. Mind wanders away, you come back to the breathing or come back to the touch points. It's up to you. Working with the body though.
attachment. So it's possible to have a mindfulness anchor that's not the body, not the touch points of the breathing, in one practice that is often taught within the framework of insight. Meditation is the practice of listening to sounds as our anchor. So why don't we pick up the listening practice right now? And what that means is we're practicing being present, but we're listening to sounds. And it may seem really quiet in the room, which is relatively quiet, but there are sounds arising in our environment and they come and go. Some of them are very discreet. You know, they're very subtle. The sounds will come and go, just like the voice here. Rises, expresses itself, and disappears. Changing phenomena, sounds. I'm sure we're all aware of that. But the practice is to keep listening to anchor our attention in that listening mode. Just receiving sounds. And even if it's possible to let go of the label or the thoughts about the sound and just receiving sound as sound. Oftentimes we might hear a sound and realize, you know, label it be a bird singing, we say bird singing, but there's the sound and then there's the label bird singing. So that's not a problem, but those are two separate processes. There's the receiving of the sound and then the labeling. So let's see if we can get in a mode where we're just listening. And we notice when we stop listening because we get caught up in the world of thought, or maybe we get caught, drawn to some body sensation so we aware of that thought or that other body sensation, and then we simply come back to listening again. Coming back to the listening.
So we can work with the body as an anchor. We can work with sound. It's our choice. We can also expand the mindfulness practice further by including if there's a particular state of mind or a particular body sensation that's calling our attention. We can rest our attention on that experience and also be mindful of what we're doing with it. So a very good example of this is taking the present moment condition. Say, for instance, you're feeling sleepy or the mind is feeling very dull and wandering. So there can be an awareness that that's what's happening, recognizing it, acknowledging it, understanding that it's a conditioned state, you know, arises under these conditions, oftentimes afternoon. So it's not that personal. Everybody who's meditated is very familiar with it. But there's also insight into the suffering that we generate around it. And I know for me, there used to be a lot of suffering whenever I'd start feeling sleepy. There would be resistance. I'll say more about that later, but we can also be aware if we are feeling sleepy See if there's any resistance around it and be mindful of that experience. So it's mindfulness of sleepiness, which has certain characteristics. Head tilts forward, difficult to pay attention, feels heavy, not light. But then there's also the holding of it or the relationship to it. So it could be fear, could be impatience, could be discouragement could be enjoyment. Maybe it feels pleasant. So just being aware. It's a good example of when we think that we're feeling sleepy, we can't practice. But the reality is, sure, the conditions aren't exactly the way we want them to be. But those are the situations where we learn the most. So just being aware of that relationship, that aversion, if it arises. If it doesn't, fine. Come back to the body, come back to the breathing, come back to listening to sound. Just keeping the mindfulness practice going for the remainder of the sitting. What matters is we're making a very wise and gentle effort to keep coming back to the here and now.
keep coming back to the here and now, whether it's the body sitting or breathing, whether it's a listening practice, receiving sounds as they arise, express themselves and disappear in our environment, or if there's a state of mind that's predominant, could be sleepiness or restlessness, be mindful of that process, that conditioned experience, state of mind, and then be aware of how we are relating to it. Is there an emotional response to it? Is there resistance, impatience, desire, doubt?
Okay, so let's take a about five minutes, five, seven minutes mindful break, freshen up. Uh, the Buddha suggested uh, cold water on the face when you're feeling sleepy. It's a true story. So it's been around for a while, that particular state. All yogis encounter it, uh, so don't take it personally. But uh, see if you can just pick it up a little bit and then we'll come back. I'll talk for a while. Sorry, what's that? Did you say you were going to sing? Uh, no, that I'm not going to do. I guarantee that. And it's not out of fear, it's out of compassion for you guys. <laughs> so, um, no, the stand is unbelievable. I mean, it, you know, you can't improve. You know, sometimes you think you can keep improving. You know, like that fancy thing they just bought is, frankly, it's problematic. Um, this thing is fantastic. You can adjust the height. You know, you can kind of look out, read the notes, affect, change the angle. I mean, have the clock sitting on it. <laughs> this is the way to go. This is literally the first time the center has had a stand. I'm amazed. But it, I initiated this. <laughs> so I feel good about that. I'm not sure what other people used, but I assume people sit, sit from chairs, sit on chairs. But anyway. Uh, so, you know, condition happiness is good sometimes, you know, this is condition happiness. <laughs> it's nice to have uh, things work in our favor. Uh, so I, I uh, just wanted to finish up on this little chart over here. You know, we went through delusion, the whole process of not knowing uh, the unconscious, the stories we tell ourselves about our experience, and it's endless. You know, we're always telling ourselves, actually, about our experience. Always commenting, got our views and opinions, our, you know, value judgments. You know, we carry them around with us all the time. Uh, and it gets in the way, sometimes, anyway. And then the aversion is the resistance, of course, and the not wanting, uh, the not liking, judging, uh, and different forms of that when we encounter painful emotions or difficult emotions. We talked about that. And now the third one is identification, which is this process that we do very deeply conditioned. Buddha spent a lot of time talking about identification and uh, kind of taking that one apart, deconstructing the notion of a solid self. Uh, and you know, it's, it's what distinguishes in many ways the Buddhist teachings from other teachings is that um, when the Buddha took a look at his own experience, he didn't find a self. He didn't find some kind of permanent, lasting being uh, that didn't change. It was always, he was a 
mind-body process, constant environment, everything is changing, including us. One person mentioned that we're part of nature, you know, that insight of seeing that. And, uh, it used to be the title of a talk I used to give on not self, which is that we're included in nature. Uh, we're part of nature. We're not separate. You know, sometimes it's, it's amazing how um, convincing the story can be, but when you just think of it even just, remember I said there's different levels of right view or understanding right view. One can be on an intellectual level. And I mean, if you, if you think that nature is constantly in a process of change, and we can see it just here, out here, very clearly, um, you know, what makes us separate, you know? Uh, well, you know, the Buddha didn't, you know, the not-self isn't a negative, it's just recognizing the reality that we're always changing, okay? And that there's not this one permanent um, being that we call self, or I call, you know, Michael Grady. It's a changing process. Um, how does that play out, though, in our emotional life in a big way? Because there's a tendency, strong tendency to claim the emotions that we experience as me or mine. So somebody might think of themselves as, I am an anxious person, I am an angry person. And what I would say is, well, you might experience a lot of anxiety, you might experience a lot of anger, but that's not who you are. And so often we, you know, we identify uh, with these changing experiences, and that's a form of delusion, but it's also telling ourselves a story, that that's who we are. And it's deeply ingrained and often quite unconscious, but we're often living from that place, that assumption that this is who I am. Um, even if we know it's changing, there's still the sense that there's somebody there. Uh, and so one of the difficulties in working with emotional life, in beginning to see say it's changing nature or beginning to develop some equanimity around it or some space, uh, is that we take it personally. Obviously, we take it personally. The way, we, the way this plays out is that there's oftentimes a lot of self-judgment around particular emotions, for instance. And what we can see, the self-judgment is a combination of aversion, the judgment, like not like judging it, uh, but also self-judgment. There's identification in that. There's, there's not just judging that as a bad experience, but there's judging me for having that bad experience. Okay? And that is profoundly um, uh, predominant, prevalent in this particular culture. And we run into it all the time, is that there's a tremendous amount you know, of self-judgment. And sometimes when we wake up, when we're, we're facilitating this process of awakening and we start seeing these habits that aren't working for us, or these habits that have systematically limited us in, uh, throughout our life or in the moment itself, uh, you know, it, 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 oftentimes that waking up process, you know, kind of we, we, we resist it or, or we, we, we can judge. Ourself. And it's one of the reasons why like this path can be a little bit difficult or a little bit challenging. It's because we're seeing things that are maybe are painful or that generate suffering or that re reflect some kind of limitation that we have or that we're dealing with. Um, but because we're, we're seeing that it's in, and at the same time identifying with it, it can be quite painful. And so the process is meant to continue though. It's not just knowing that we're having a particular experience, it's developing the ability to be able to uh, investigate or explore that particular experience with mindfulness. In other words, mindfulness lets us know what we're experiencing, but if we pay, as mindfulness gets stronger, it allows us to begin to see the moment-to-momentness of the experience. Like in other words, we might be aware, mindfulness might say we're feeling anxiety, but with some training, 
as the mindfulness becomes more a tool, you know, as we've developed that skillful uh, quality of mind of mindfulness that we begin to remember it and actually be able to pay attention with more frequency of mindfulness, uh, then what we begin to see is that if we pay attention to anxiety, we can begin to see that it's a process. Okay, it's not just one thing, but it's actually changing, literally changing from one moment to the next, uh, just like the sounds. That's one of the reasons why I like listening practice because it's really obvious that we're not identifying with those sounds, we're seeing that they're changing. We're not necessarily taking them as self, but we do in our emotional life, it's very different because we take it very personally. We think it's who we are uh, or it's my anger. And one of the reasons why I write this list and put it out, post it, is to begin to see that, um, like I said, there's probably, you know, I, I'd say I experienced almost all of them. A couple of them I don't totally understand, but most of them I can experience, and I think a lot of people can too. And so that's helpful to see that, because uh, one of the consequences of this identification process of taking these experiences as a self is that it creates oftentimes a sense of disconnect, a separateness, you know, the separateness from other beings, feeling like it's only me. You know, if you think any experience you're having is only me, that is like supreme delusion. Like, there's no experience you're going to have that somebody else hasn't had it. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's happening to you now, but we've all had most of these experiences at one point or another. And if we haven't, we probably will at some point. Uh, so, uh, you know, but that strong tendency to claim it as me and mine generates a lot of suffering for us because then we begin to experience these things as more threatening, you know, more solid than they are. So we're disconnecting, you know, we're challenged by them more than we need to be. You know, we react to them. No, I'm not. Um, what I would say is we're responsible for how we deal with our emotions. Okay, I, what, I'm, what I'm saying is that emotions are conditioned. They come up based on certain contexts or conditions, but we are responsible where we can have power or some say is how, what we do with those emotions, how we relate to them. And that's what practice is doing. Practice doesn't necessarily get rid of fear but it can free us of the, of the uh, aversion or the pain that, or the suffering that is in relationship to fear. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and, but taking responsibility means, I mean, in order to do that, you know, we have to basically see that it's happening, but also realizing that, and this is not something that's so accessible to folks, is to realize that it's possible to relate to it differently through our own effort. You know, that's not, that's not common knowledge. You know, folks assume that what they're experiencing is what they're experiencing. That's like there's not a lot of alternatives. And that's what leaves human beings so vulnerable to their greed or to their hatred or to their delusion is that there's, there doesn't seem like there's an alternative. You know, there doesn't, often folks with pleasure, there's not a lot of alternatives. There's not necessarily a lot of wisdom in terms of how to relate to it. It just seems... Uh, assumed that if you're experiencing something pleasure, pleasant, you, want, you, you should want more of it. You should hang on with their life because, you know, this is really where happiness is. Or the same with pain. If, if we're encountering something painful, it's to get out of there as fast as you can and get away from it as fast as you can. And then we define happiness by that. 
But that, of course, imprisons us and limits us and disempowers us. So we have some say over how we re relate to pleasant or unpleasant. We have a lot of say over that. But it does take this wise effort or a very gentle training of the mind to begin to see the impermanent nature of a lot of these experiences. In other words, if we don't see the experience, of ple a pleasant experience, we, if we don't see that it's changing, there's a strong tendency to cling to it. And if we don't see the pain is changing also, there's a strong tendency to be threatened by it or react with stronger aversion. But once we begin to understand on a deep level, direct level, not just intellectually, but on a direct level, that things are changing, we develop more relaxation around it, more freedom, more equanimity. But the reality is it's very difficult to do that. With strong emotions, it's very difficult to have a strong emotion, especially if it's painful or difficult, and actually see that it's changing while it's happening. You know, it's really helpful to see it after it's passed. You know, oftentimes that's a big part of practice, I think, is when you go through a strong storm or a strong emotion. And then, you know, sometimes it's just, okay, move on to the next. You know, but I always say, hey, stop for a few moments and realize you were super angry half an hour ago and now you're not. You know? And, and it's important to recognize that because just registering it even as a past tense, in other words, we were there but we're not there now, is helpful. Because the mind begins to learn something and pick it up a little earlier. And with practice, you can pick it up, you know, the idea is to keep picking it up as early as you can. Connect to whatever's happening now as early as you can because then that creates options. Or, you know, or, uh, options in terms of how you're going to respond to it. You don't necessarily have to suffer for as long. So does this make sense? Does this? Is, okay. Um, so the fact that we don't see ourselves as nature is a form of delusion. You know, all of these are very interrelated. They're not, they're not really that separate in some ways. Uh, delusion, identification, aversion, they're all really in some ways, uh, you know, seeing experiences as solid, often claiming them as me or mine, and then the, the reaction to them is often um, very strong. Uh, and then another consequence, I think, and this is something I've become more aware of over the last few years, um, one of the consequences of being identified so much with what you're experiencing and, and caught up in that, uh, like I said, there is this um, tendency to, to uh, separate oneself from others. Um, and I, of, I often think that this identification process makes it a lot harder to just respond with compassion. You know, when we encounter suffering in ourselves, when we take it personally, there's more likely we're going to judge it or react with aversion than we would compassion. And I've seen this in my own, my own case, like I said, with working with my arm. You know, the, early on, there's this kind of identification process, I screwed up kind of thing, you know, like the car. Uh, you know, I screwed up here. And so there's a lot of self in that. But then, you know, working through that and seeing the story, seeing that I'm telling myself a story, and it's an old one, uh, I start seeing the transparency of that. It doesn't have as much power over me. And then where do I land? Well, I land well. It's painful. It's actually a natural response to pain is compassion. Aversion is a conditioned response. Compassion is really more like our nature. Uh, it's natural to, 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 to want to, 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 when one encounters pain, to feel compassion, but not in the world that we're living in. It's, it's not that readily available because of all the conditioning 
all the judgments and all the value judgments about um, pain as being a bad thing. Pain is not a bad thing. It's part of life. It's not pleasant because it's unpleasant. Um, but it, and it's a significant part of life. And if we live uh, really with a lot of aversion to it, then we're living a lot, of course, with fear because we try to avoid that. So this absence of compassion, the difficulty of gaining to compassion is oftentimes we feel very isolated and um, judging oftentimes of our suffering. And then when we encounter other pain outside of ourselves, and I've seen this with a lot of uh, meditators, but also with my own experience, that sometimes it's a lot easier to have compassion for other beings uh, than it is oneself. Why is that? because we have created a self, right? Uh, that's separate from everybody else, you know, which is really the height of delusion. Uh, in some ways, it doesn't mean there's not differences. Of course there are. Like even with these difficult emotions, you know, there's two or three of them that I'm, you know, I've predominantly worked with. And like say in patience, which squeezed it in there. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, there's situations where I'm enormously pa patient. You know, I just don't get impatient. You know, in certain situations, it, that some for some people it really provokes a lot of impatience. And then there's some situations I get impatient. You know, and other people wouldn't wouldn't even think about getting impatient. They're they're fine with it, whatever that might be. I've seen this over and over again. So it it's it, you know our our conditioning is different. You know, in terms of our past experiences and the culture and the family and the education and all the other experiences that we've heard, uh, ways that we've been harmed, you know, ways that we've been rewarded. So our conditioning is quite different. But at the same time that you can see there's so much commonality with what our experience is. But when we identify with these experiences, it immediately cuts us off. Um, and so, um, you know, I often think, and I'll get to it, um, I think, tonight, which is trying to cultivate more compassion towards oneself. Um, in, in working with painful emotions because it really helps a lot. really takes a lot of the sting out of it and um, it really is closer to um, you know it's touching more what our potential is as human beings um, rather than our, the conditioning that we're often playing out. So I wanted to uh, Finish up on, and we'll get. I'm going to say more about identification as we go along, but I do want to finish up that. So, mostly what we've been talking about, right? I've been talking a lot, um, is um, kind of this legacy of unskillful relationships, you know, to different emotions, right? And what I'm saying, of course, is that there's a history with these emotions, not only a history. Like I said, some of us experience certain emotions, others don't experience it as strong. So there's a history around the emotions, depending really on our conditioning, our, our background. Um, but also there's, there's, a, there's an accumulation of, of a lot of unskillful relationships. And, we've been, and what we're saying is when we wake up, that's what we're going to be seeing often, is things that, ways we're relating that are, are unskillful, that generate suffering. But so this afternoon I wanted to focus a little bit more um, and we've been talking about it some for sure with mindfulness and we'll continue talking about it with mindfulness, which is beginning, you know, the, the notion of cultivating that which is skillful and abandoning that which is unskillful. Okay, that's wise effort. 
right? It's cultivating those inner resources that we have and in the process abandoning the unskillful, the kind of, a lot of the confused conditioning that we've accumulated along the way. And those two things are, are related. Uh, in other words, when we nurture and, cult and cultivate uh, skillful qualities of mind, mindfulness is one of them, I'll get to that in a minute, then what, what happens is we're also abandoning you know, our automatic conditioning or our reactions. In other words, we're, we're, we're developing the capacity, say, uh, to be mindful of pain without the aversion. Right? Or to be mindful of the aversion without reinforcing it. Okay? So mindfulness is, is really a very different approach. And to me, what's so powerful about it is that simultaneously as we develop it, we're also tasting freedom more and more. Uh, and in fact, one mo any moment of mindfulness is a moment of non-identification. In other words, we're actually meeting the here and now without that self. You know, it's just, oh, sensations happening, body's happening, emotions are happening. You know, there's not, there's, there's uh, uh, an abandoning of that strong concept of self. And the power of mindfulness is, you know, sometimes we think, well, it's about, meditation's about getting distance from your experience. No, it's not about getting distance about your experience. It's getting closer to your experience, actually. When you sit, you're getting closer to your experience. Okay, when you distract or get preoccupied or disconnect or react, you're getting further away from your experience, unless you're aware of that. Um, no, it's about, you get closer, but the beauty is you're getting closer, but there's breathing room. Okay, there's breathing room. You're close to the experience, there's an intimacy, but there's breathing room, there's space. Because you're not imposing. What closes the space around the experience is that imposing of that expectation or that idea that it shouldn't be there. So mindfulness doesn't do that. It never imposes on an experience. That's not its characteristic. It's not an ideal. It's, its characteristic is that it doesn't add or subtract onto the experience. So it's just allowing you to know what that experience is from moment to moment. So that's the beauty of mindfulness, is that um, it leads to this process where we, where we begin to change our habits. In other words, the mindfulness of the habits, the, way, the mindfulness of the emotions, begin, we begin to see the nature of that emotion. We begin to see its changing nature because we're paying attention moment to moment. And if you pay attention to anxiety from one moment to the next, to the next, to the next, I guarantee you, if you're being mindful, you will see that it's changing that it's not one thing, it is not solid, it is changing. In fact, in many ways you can see it, I'll get to it in a minute, when you observe it in the body, which is that it's a form of energy. Actually, it may have a collection of thoughts, maybe it doesn't, but it's a changing process. So mindfulness allows us to see the changing nature uh, of that emotion, but it's also not reinforcing our habits around it, because we're also being mindful of that. And so what happens is there's a deconditioning process that's going on here. You know, we're, we're not being as subject to our conditioning as we normally would be. And what I'm saying a lot, you know, it sounds maybe harsh, but I really believe this, that a lot of our conditioning is diluted. You know, it's like we, we've been sold a bill of goods uh, on a very deep level, and it, it's, it really isn't taking us where we want to go. Uh, so we need another approach, and this is one approach. It's not the only one by any stretch of the imagination, but it's a very powerful one. Uh, and uh, and uh, mindfulness is a very, very powerful practice 
Uh, it's not necessarily that we see this deconditioning and letting go the first time we start practicing it, but over the course of time, very powerful and deeply grained habits can change. And I'll say tonight, I'll be talking about different ways that uh, we can work with mindfulness uh, in a practical way in everyday life. We'll get into that a little bit tonight. Um, but certainly, this process of, of getting to know oneself without any judgments is, is a process of letting go. It's a fundamentally different way of working. So, um, just by its nature, you know, it's different than what our thinking process is. Our thinking process is embedded with lots of opinions and views, uh, lots of preconceptions. Mindfulness is free of that. You know, mindfulness is not the entire path, though. I think it's important to realize that. Everybody says, you know, sometimes you see with this mindfulness stuff, you know, that's out there now. It's like, you know, it's like, a, it's everything. You know, it isn't. It's part of it. It's, a, it's, a, it, it, it's, it has, a, it serves wisdom, mindfulness. You know, I mean, life isn't just about being mindful. You know, you're being mindful, but it's, to, you know, getting to know oneself and be mindful of one's experience. It's in the service of wisdom, of discernment. You know, life is very complex. I often say that mindfulness is very simple. Wisdom is complex. Because wisdom occurs within a context. You know, like we can say, if somebody insults us, well, we can be mindful of those feelings, and that's important. You know, if we look back at that, you can be mindful of that. But, you know, and that helps, of course, because we can see our reactions and all that. But at some point, we have to make a decision on how we're going to respond. And that's discernment. That's taking up that information that we're getting from mindfulness and then responding to a, a complex situation, a particular moment in time in our life where there's a set of conditions there. And we need to try to understand what the best way to work with that particular situation is. You know, so like when that young fellow over there was talking about his job, that's a complicated situation. Very complex. It's not, mindfulness isn't going to just do it. There needs to be a lot more wisdom along with it. You know, and that's usually for most of us, it's a very gradual process of waking up and seeing what works and what doesn't. Making mistakes, you know, making assumptions, making, you know, mistakes that lead to suffering. And then discerning that and realizing that we don't have to keep repeating it. You know, wisdom is not repeating the same thing over and over again with, you know, hoping that you're going to get the same result. Probably not. You know, as I said, you know, one of the big insights I had at the beginning of my practice, you know, really, I was a basket case when I first started practicing. You might still say I am. Who knows? But back then, I was a young guy, my early 20s, had a lot of significant problems, kind of phobic about a lot of things, social issues, really, like, you know, just intensely shy and introverted and, and kind of unhappy about it because it was unsatisfying. Um, so, you know, of course, when I practiced, it was, you know, Took some, you know, took a certain level of perseverance to to, to stick it out uh, in the situation, my life situation, anyways. It took a lot of effort uh, to to uh, create the conditions for me to practice. Um, but uh, so I felt like I had my share of obstacles, not maybe not more than some others, but some pretty significant ones. But I had one really good thing going for me, one thing that really served me well which is, I did realize, I've already mentioned this, but I, this was an insight that I had then, which is I wasn't going to think my way out. In that the years leading up to practice, I had spent a lot of time reading and reflecting and trying to think about things, but really, it wasn't really doing it. And so, because I realized I wasn't going to just be able to think my way out, it doesn't mean you can't think or analyze or figure out, but if all that's, your, if that's all you're doing 
it's not enough. And so given the fact that I knew I couldn't think my way out, I didn't know what was the alternative. I didn't even think there was, in a sense, an alternative to that. And so when I discovered, when mindfulness practice was introduced to me, it was amazing because like this was completely different. This wasn't thinking my way out, this was just being with, you know, shining that light of silent attention on whatever my experience was. And that just was tremendously freeing and inspiring and it, it was like a refuge, like wow, you know, all this thinking, 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 you know, that there's another way of working, another way of learning, uh, another way of getting free. Um, and so mindfulness is that. Um, so in terms of working with emotions, um, what we can look at is, you know, the four foundations of mindfulness. Uh, the four foundations of mindfulness are the body, you know, which is what we've been working a lot with as an anchor in, in insight practice. Uh, the you know, body is one of the places where we often start. You know, that's often our anchor. And the reason it is, is because it's accessible. You know, the body's here and there are sensations and some of them are very obvious sensations. And like, for instance, the breathing is happening, you know, ongoingly. So being aware of those sensations, we can begin to get grounded and train the mind to be more present. So mindfulness of body, I'll say more about that tonight. Uh, mindfulness of feeling, the feeling quality of experiences, it's the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. So let's look at mindfulness of body in relationship to, and we'll get to feeling, in relationship to these emotions. Good example was when I was driving here to the center. See, it's always this, you know, life is always like teaching you something if you're paying attention. I was driving and I hit this country road and it was really foggy, you know, and it was raining hard and there was a truck behind me and I was on a road where he couldn't pass, but he was kind of on my tail. That's one of my least favorite conditions to be in. Let's just put it that way. I hate that. You know, you talk about getting impatient, annoyed, or I hate that when these trucks climb up on your back and you can't do anything about it. So I was getting nervous, you know, as I, as I made my way here. And, uh, but I wasn't really that aware uh, that I was that nervous. I mean, I knew I was agitated, but I started feeling my mouth and I could feel that there was this clenching in my jaw. You know, it was like clenching, getting, it was getting like tight, you know, like holding tight. My breathing was really shallow. And it was really the, it was the sensations that turned me on to, you know, let me know that kind of the state I was in. And so I realized that I was under a lot of stress in this particular situation, but I, I read it through mindfulness of the body. And that's the great thing about emotions because the nature of emotions is they have body sensations with them. Okay? And to me, the strength of vipassana or the strength of insight meditation is one gets very much more, more emotionally intelligent through the awareness of the body. In other words, there is a lot of emphasis and this does come out of practice, this greater sensitivity to what the body is in, the posture it's in, the comfort level, temperature, you know, there's just a, there's a sensitizing and a greater awareness of the body because of working oftentimes with that anchor and in a, in a, in a sitting practice or a retreat environment or someplace where we're practicing continuously, we can really get to know the body in a very deep, deep level. Actually, we can experience the body on an energy level, for instance, not even, you know, just this physical, but the body is made up of, it's composed of energy, right? It's an energy system, right? So, so that awareness of the body would turn me on. And so then, so there's a mindfulness thing, right? I am, so, 
okay, where does discernment fit in? You know where it fit in? I found a place to pull over and let the truck go by. You know? Right. So I could have just kept with that. But I realized, why bother? You know? Like some people would just get into it with the truck driver, you know? Not me. The trucks are bigger than me. Uh, I wouldn't get into it even with the car. You know, it's just crazy. But that's, how, that's what does happen, right? We get into these dynamics and, and it's not helpful. It's, not, it's very aversive. Uh, so just pull over the road, truck goes by, free and clear. You know? That's how practice works. That's how we suffer less in how we don't generate more suffering in the world that we're in. What if I get into something with that truck driver? Even though I'm going to be on the losing end of things, for sure. Especially if he gets out of his truck. Uh, but, or she gets out of her truck, I should say, I'd even, whatever. Um, so the point is, you know, we don't have to do that if we're aware of what's going on. If we're not, we play it out. And that's what makes the time that we invest in meditation practice worthwhile. It's not always in the sitting practice. It's not always something that we can measure or evaluate. You know, but there's a process that is happening, an awakening process that is happening. Over and over again, I speak with, with, with meditators and they're constantly bringing up what they haven't, you know, their limitations, their limitations, their practices and where it should be, blah, 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 blah. And, and then, then, I, then I say to them, you know, I say, well, okay, so what's going on in your life? Well, you know, this is different. My, I'm relating to my family differently. You know, uh, you know this, is, this is going on at work. You know, and, and so I said, well, why do you think that's happening? You know, you think it's just happening because, you know, it's like magic or something, or you just, you know, whatever. No, it's happening because you've been practicing, more than likely. And you're waking up, and you're beginning to see alternatives, different ways of being. And you're actually able to live from that place. So, that's why it's so helpful to invest in practice. It's not just what you experience on the cushion, the calm, or the concentration, or whatever our goal is, or whatever our agenda is. Sure, it's fine to get, develop some samadhi, try to nurture some calm and peace. I'll talk more about that tonight, ways to do that. But at the same time, it's, it's extremely helpful to realize that we're investing in what I would say is a more reliable form of happiness, which is the freedom to respond to different situations in a way that is more skillful and less unskillful. And that's what makes practice worthy of our effort. So body, mindfulness of body, feeling. Again, these emotions, most of them that I think can think of are, there's, a, the, the, there's three feeling qualities. It's the tone of a particular experience. So body has a feeling quality to it, taste, sight, sound, smells, touch. They all have feeling qualities and there's three feeling qualities. There's pleasant, there's unpleasant, and there's neutral. Okay, the Buddha recognized that. Those are three feeling qualities, okay? So if we're, if we're, being aware of the feeling quality of impatience. What's the feeling quality? Unpleasant, right? Okay. Might feel, maybe the anger might feel a little empowering, but generally speaking, it will feel uncomfortable in the body for sure. It's an unpleasant feeling. Uh, fear, anxiety, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? <laughs> this is really an easy one. Yeah, sure. Yeah, these are easy, right? Most of, them are, most of them are unpleasant. Yeah, we could actually talk a little bit about pleasant emotions, but we won't get there right now. But they can cause trouble too, believe it or not. Yes, because we can cling. 
Yeah, they can cause trouble too. You ever have that? That experience of joy or something with someone and it goes away? And then you really try to get it back? Yeah, yeah. Suffering in that. That's interesting. See, nothing wrong with the pleasure and the enjoyment. In fact, when you're mindful and present, you enjoy it more. You're more free to enjoy it. There's some wisdom along with it, the pleasure though, which is recognizing it's not always going to be this way. And that's helpful. That's helpful to, to live with freedom with pleasure too. And pleasure is not a bad thing. It's part of life, just like pain is. Uh, but, you know, if we relate to pleasure with wisdom, uh, we don't suffer. We can enjoy the things that come along. But if we cling to, like, pleasant emotions, it causes trouble. So, feel, so, yes, so it's actually helpful, I think, sometimes when working with emotions to just acknowledge, yeah, this is really an unpleasant experience I'm having right now. It's really painful. I, I can't tell you how powerful that practice is just to recognize the feeling quality of it, but to acknowledge it, you know? Because that's when I think the potential for some kind of compassion or not taking it so personally comes up. Because it really does have a feeling quality to it. And so, yeah, so with pain, you know? It's not easy to be with pain, you know? And, and you know, honestly, it's not easy to be with pain at all. And there's a lot of resistance to it. And we're human beings and we're in condition to resist it. And it makes life challenging, pain, for sure. You know, so, you know, but the seeing the feeling quality of it depersonalizes it a little bit, you know, and it's seeing it as it is, because the qualities, the characteristics is what we're getting in touch with when we pay attention to emotions. There's body sensations coupled with it, there's feelings, and the third is mental states, the thoughts. Of course, there's thinking occurring in a lot of these states, right? Absolutely. If we look at anger, there's a lot of thoughts in that. If we look at fear, there's a lot of thoughts in that. If we look at impatience, there's a lot of thoughts. Impatience is that expectation, you know, that something should be happening that isn't. And we get impatient. And, you know, we're judging. Um, so there's thoughts. And so being mindful of an emotion is also aware of the thought content. But, you know, oftentimes that what, that's what we're aware of is the thought content. But looking at the painful feeling or seeing it as the body is a very helpful practice. And then the fourth... Uh, Fourth uh, foundation of mindfulness is laws of experience. In other words, beginning when we pay attention in a sustained way, we begin to see things more clearly as they are. In other words, we begin to see the fact that whatever we're paying attention to, if we're paying attention with mindfulness to any experience that we're having, whether it's a thought, feeling, word, doesn't matter, it's changing. It's not going to stick around. It's changing. Even if we have like a chronic pain issue or something like that, it's still changing from one moment to the next if we pay attention, careful attention. It may have its characteristics, you know, like we look out at that tree and that tree, you know, in the, from moment to moment doesn't look like it's changing, but it is. We know that intellectually. We know it. We just can't, we don't necessarily see it from moment to moment. We, we're not, that level of mindfulness, that strength of mindfulness or awareness isn't developed enough to see that. It's true oftentimes with emotions too. We don't necessarily see the changing nature of it, um, but they are changing. Sometimes though, it's just enough to recognize and acknowledge that you're there. Uh, that's a huge step forward. To me, that's the most important step you can take. Because once, if you don't recognize and acknowledge you're having the experience, then it's not, the, it's, 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 it's not like we're gonna take it up as a work or as a practice. We're gonna just live from that place. Um, so recognizing and acknowledge creates the opportunity to begin to look at it more closely, to, to sort of recognize what we're having, 
what we're experiencing and take a look at how it's, how it's expressing itself. So the four foundations of mindfulness, body, feeling, and they're all doors. There's a, they're all ways to approach or investigate or take a look at our emotions and seeing them in a realistic way. You know, we're, we're getting in touch with, with, which, with what's real, not what we think is real. You know, we often think of things as real, but oftentimes we're uh, deluded. We're not really seeing it. It's not thinking that it's changing. It's actually seeing that it's changing. We may think that it's changing. That doesn't necessarily do it. We actually have to see it. And sometimes we have to see it a lot. And as I said, sometimes mindfulness isn't enough. And I'll talk a little bit about other ways um, to work with emotions other than just you know, observing it. And I'll talk more about mindfulness of sensations later too. Share a couple of my experiences with that. I want to save that tonight. I love this. It's fantastic. The little things in life. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. I've already said a lot of this already. Were you going to talk about process nature? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, I just was, really. But we can. Oh, process nature means that there's a process. It's a process. It's not one thing. You know, so like when we think of something's in process, it means that it's changing. You know? It, oh, it, like nature. Correct. Oh, I thought it was. What, what, did it, what did we say there? Just process? Is that all process I said? nature. Like I thought yeah. Oh, no. No. Nothing hidden in that. No, it meant, meant that, that we see these things as a process. You know, that we're moving through them. That they're, they're occurring, but they're changing from one moment to the next. Um, Okay, a couple things. Yeah, why don't I say this? Kind of finish up with this, and then we're going to take a little bit of a walk or something. It doesn't look... What? Brutal out there? Well, you could have a cup of tea. What? Too tough out there? Well, then have tea. We're going to need to squeeze in a little bit of a break here. Uh, what's that? Yeah, you're just saying you don't want to go outside. That's what you're saying. I can appreciate that. I know I have resistance to it too, but I'm gonna, I, you know, just to energize a little bit. Who knows? Uh, so I wanted to talk about something that, um, I don't know, this is like pretty big. I mean, it, it was a very big shift in my own practice. It really opened my own practice up a lot. Uh, and it doesn't take 20 years, which is kind of nice. Um, which is, you know, we were talking about with mindfulness, the quality of mindfulness is non-judgmental, okay? Non-judgmental attention. In other words, it's not imposing anything on the experience. Well, another way, what supports the development of mindfulness, you know, in other words, we're asking ourselves to be not, you know, like just pay attention silently without judging it. Okay. So that's asking a lot, okay? Because our thinking processes will certainly interfere with that and get involved 
and you know that that's one of the reasons why it's hard to get access to mindfulness, right? Because our thinking is so cluttered and so um, limited and so habitual that you know it's kind of hard to sort of find that space, you know, that mindfulness that mindfulness gives us. Um, so what I discovered certainly uh, is that um, kind of what we can work on is our attitude, you know, our attitude towards ourself an attitude in our practice itself. And, you know, we talked a lot about working, especially like in this arena, really helpful. Working with difficult emotions, right? We talk about the fact that mindfulness is one way of observing characteristics and being mindful of aversion and resistance is a way of not reinforcing the resistance, okay? Because we're not getting on that bandwagon of aversion, resistance, avoidance, but we're just being aware of it, okay? So we're not feeding it, it's losing some of its power, but another powerful way to facilitate mindfulness, this really helps mindfulness grow, clears the path in a way for mindfulness, and they both are, uh, relate to each other, they both support each other, which is cultivating an attitude. Uh, and there's an investigative question um, that I have done, and that I teach, and that I want to encourage you to do whenever you're encountering painful or difficult emotions. And the, the, the practice is, is asking oneself, you know, can I make room for this experience? You know, can I make room for it? You know, and when we think about making room, say someone comes into the, to the hall and we stand in front of the doorway blocking their way. Well, that's called not making room for that person, right? <laughs> or we get into a relationship with somebody and we have all sorts of views or opinions uh, about them. Now, is that making room? in the relationship itself. Of course not, right? It's, it's, it's again, it's, it's not, not making room for that person to manifest or express themselves or for you to connect with that person in any kind of meaningful way. Well, can I make room for uh, these emotions? It's such a powerful practice to, to at least begin to investigate and see if it's possible. So like for instance, if I was experiencing anxiety and I recognize that that anxiety is happening, you know, one question I could ask myself is, you know, can I make room for this? You know, do I have to fix it? Do I have to get rid of it? Do I have to judge myself? You know, can I just make room, can I just let that happen? You know, can I make room for it? Uh, you know, can I make room for this uh, fear? Uh, can I make, make room for the impatience or we're feeling envy? Okay, we all have a bad feeling about envy, right? It's really kind of, you know, we'd probably have a lot of shame if we, acknowledge that we're feeling envious of this person. You know, it's something we're not supposed to experience. But can I, you know, you're feeling envious toward, maybe it's some celebrity that seems to have everything that's going their way, right? And you're feeling envy, or, you, or that person next door to you, you know, they're in this perfect relationship, they have everything, they're very successful, have lots of money, everybody's really healthy, you know, they got everything that going their way, they go on these great vacations on the beach and having drinks. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, their life is going really well, you know. They, so there's some envy there, okay. So make room for it. Allow it to happen. Okay, so envy. Get to know envy. We're not going to get to know anybody if we don't make room for them in our life. We, you know, sometimes we won't make room. We don't need to. But if we are going to get to know someone, we have to create space. We have to make room for them. And so can I make room for this? Okay. Asking that question, right. The reason we're asking that question is because inherently, not inherently, but conditionally, old habits, is that we are not going to make room. We are going to resist 
that painful emotion, that difficult emotion. In fact, what we're saying is the reason it's difficult is because of the resistance. Okay, that's, where, that's what we have some, some say over, and that's creating a lot of suffering around that. Okay? So can I make room is a question. Now, what I would say for some folks, we were talking about you know, that feeling of despair or that feeling like you know, this habit has always been happening and you know, it's maybe you feel like it's always going to continue. Um, you know, or just any kind of really unpleasant emotion, we might say, you know, can I make room for, for, for this fear that I'm having right now uh, about some conflict that you're dealing with? Or maybe you found out that somebody was um, sick in your family, something I just discovered myself, and some fear came up around that. And so I say, can I make room for that, you know, fear? But quite often, you may get a no. And in fact, that may really be the first response you get is no, I don't really want to have this experience. You know, if I'm being honest, I don't want to feel anxious. I want it to go away. That might be a very authentic, you know, thought about that particular experience. Is no, I don't want it. That don't want it, or that judgment, or that aversion, of course, is a reaction that will create suffering because we're having the experience, right? So the next step is, okay, can you make room for not wanting it? No, it sounds funny, but it's really true. And, and when we ask, can I make room? A lot of times it's making room for the resistance. Say we're judging ourselves for um, feeling anxious or, or judging ourselves for... Um, yeah, that too, sure. Okay, so we're judging that, okay? So can we make room for the judgment? You know, can I make room for this judgment? And then you say, no, I'm really a rotten person and I, I, don't, I don't want to make, do the dishes and blah, blah, blah. I don't know what the story would be around that. I don't judge myself for that at all. Uh, I just do them <laughs> when I want to do them. Um, but um, sure, so can I make room? You know, and to me, this is an incredibly powerful practice. In terms of working with painful experiences where there's an automatic resistance, it's just been super helpful. Because sometimes I say yes. I can make room for this. And it's night and day. Night and day. What happens is often when we make room for the experience, it passes through. It's like counter to what our intuition says, which is we want to get away from it. We don't want to have it. That's just empowering it. If we can allow ourselves to have it, if we can make room for it, the energy of that experience flows through. The mindfulness can then function. You know, because it's non-judgmental attention. We're clearing that path for mindfulness to work because we're, we're nurturing a kind of attitude. And that to me is wise effort, is that attitude. If we want to learn from our experience, which is the, is the path of Dharma, is learning from our experience. If we want to learn from our experience, we have to allow that experience to be. You know, if you want to get to know someone, you have to listen. You know, you can't just talk, you can't just judge, you can't just impose your views and opinions on an experience. You're not going to learn anything new. So, moving into that receptive mode, seeing if it's possible. And then with the resistance, like I said, it's insidious. You know, there's so many subtle forms of resistance. Um, but, you know, when you start picking up on it, you say, okay, there's resistance, you know. And, and by making room, I think you're moving much closer towards a more compassionate response to that painful experience and more compassionate response to the resistance. Because let's face it, the resistance has been something we've been practicing for a very long time. 
That's what we've been trained to do, is resist pain. So can I make a room? And there's a really nice quote um, by Rilke that I just think is like, wow, this is really advanced practice, but it's something to, to reflect on. And this is uh, Rilke. So what he says is, he's talking about the spiritual path, this process of awakening, growing, transforming. He says, what is required of us is that we love the difficult and learn to deal with it. And the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work on us. Go through that again. So what is required of us, wise effort, is that we love the difficult. In other words, we meet the difficulty without judging it, this open-hearted attention. We love the difficult and learn to deal with it. In other words, the wisdom piece, how to respond skillfully, learn to deal with it. That's what he means. He doesn't mean get rid of it. He's not talking about that. He's talking about responding to it, the reality, the actuality of our experience. It's in the difficult, and this is so true, what I was pointing to before, which is that in the difficult, sometimes the deeper lessons are discovered. You know? But they, in difficult conditions, it can be very easy to be overwhelmed by them without the resources. And that is, again, why we practice, is to develop those resources when we are in difficult. And so in the friendly forces, uh, in the difficult are the friendly forces, the hands that work in us. That's where a lot of the healing occurs. When we start shifting our relationship to these emotions, the healing occurs. You know, when we take, when we have the ability, ability to take up the difficult and learn from it, instead of being bogged down in it or overwhelmed in it, um, that's when a profound amount of freedom and confidence and faith in ourselves that we have this ability to do that. And we all in this room have that capacity. It's innate because these are inner resources that we all have. But it takes wise effort to nurture them and cultivate them. It takes wise effort to begin to let go of some of the habits that we've picked up along the way. And as we nurture the qualities that are skillful, the unskillful begin to lose their power. You know, that's, that's how practice works. Yeah. Just what? Brush it aside? Yeah, it, it doesn't concern you. And maybe for a moment there is something. But then, okay, so but now you decide to give it a room, and then what, what, what happens next? Well, okay. giving room up. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah, Mike. Wake up. Well, when you make room, if, if envy isn't a strong, powerful feeling, when you make room, it'll just, it'll pass more quickly. Okay, so envy's, what I mean by making room is, uh, yeah, there's acknowledgement that envy's happening. Okay, envy's happening. So let's take a look at it while it's around. You know, what is it that I'm envying? You could see that maybe it's, uh, 
the relationship the person's in or the money that they have or the success or the vacations they're getting. So right. we, can, we could see what would be triggering the envy. Right. And we're not judging it, we're just seeing it and it will pass. Absolutely. So we are not judging, are we going to act yeah. on, the, on this? Is it possible, for example, anger, okay, if so we let, uh, we give uh, anger room and um, mm -hmm. does it mean that it will grow bigger or? Well, one thing is you have to take a look at that. Uh, see, what I think, it, it's different, it's not feeding the energy, mm -hmm. you know, with more thoughts. It's allowing ourselves to have the anger, but that, that's not necessarily giving us permission to do whatever we want with the anger. Okay, it's different. It's more an attitude. It's, this is about attitude. It's not always about the action that we take. Okay, but it's more about an attitude of uh, being open-hearted with whatever experience we have. So if we feel jealous, for instance, is another negative, right? Nobody, nobody likes that. Nobody wants to admit that they're feeling jealous, right? So jealous, and so, uh, you know, but if you make room for those jealous feelings, okay, so I'm feeling jealous, big deal, you know? It's just jealousy, and but you know, if if we don't make room, we struggle with it, or we feed it, you know, then we might do something unskillful. We might say something or do something unskillful, or we might then just judge ourselves and repress that that jealous energy, whatever it might be, and that and that's what we have to be careful about. Is if we don't make room for those experiences, they get rechanneled. You, know? you don't try okay. to rationalize it. What's that? You don't try to rationalize. No, I don't, I don't try to rationalize it. I mean, I, I, that's not what making room means. Making room literally it means just letting it, letting it express itself. You know, it, it's literally just letting it express itself, but not necessarily acting from that place, you know, because that takes, that's a decision that we're going to make based on what we're experiencing. But this is more about an attitude of receptivity and non-interference. It's allowing ourselves to have. It's allowing ourselves to have all these experiences, but these experiences are transient, and we'll see their transient nature much more if we make room. Guarantee it. If we don't make room, we harden around it, and it becomes a deep ingrained habit. If we make room for it, it arises, it expresses itself, it might come back, but it expresses itself, and then it goes away. Um, there's, you know, no manipulation in that, or um, no agenda. It's just allowing ourselves to have what our authentic experience is. See, to me, that's what practice is too. It's being authentic. It's being like, um, being in touch with what's real, not all our ideas or views or opinions or preconceptions, but it's about being with what's real. And these emotions are part of life. So we want to, uh, we want to be able to recognize and acknowledge them, make room for them. But then, you know, once we make room for them and acknowledge them, then we may make, need to make a decision you know, around what we're going to do with that particular emotion when it's arising, you know. But wisdom is much more likely to come in if we make room. We can see it, we can see more clearly what's happening, and then we can uh, maybe, uh, we can make different choices or decisions or actions based on what we know. See it more fully, yeah. Uh, you need the mic. No, it won't get recorded. I know. <laughs> Feeling impatient? <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Do you think it might be helpful to go through the kind of inquiry as an example of what you mean? Because I, I, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of us would like give in to the envy. Doing the uns what would be the skillful kind of inquiry that might help us, you know, detach from it? Um, well, okay, so um, 
Okay, so say um, we're in relationship with someone and there is some unresolved issue or conflict that is arising in relation, which is very common, right? Um, but say we, our history, what we've learned along the way is to avoid conflict, okay? And we've developed a lot of different strategies to do that. You know, one way to do it is like, you know, always be nice or always look for approval, um, you know, or be quiet. Or fight with or accommodating. Everybody. What's that? Or fight with everybody. Well, that's one way of dealing with it, sure. Absolutely. But so, so, but say this, but with the fear of conflict, chances are you may not be fighting with everybody, right? Because you're going to be avoiding that conflict. There's something very threatening. So what I would say is that, say you're, you're contemplating what to do about this conflict, right? And so um, what you're going to see if you pay attention to your moment of own experience is that some fear or anxiety starts arising around these different scenarios or, or that, that thought that you need to talk to this person. You feel like it's really important, but, it's, but you don't, there's a part of you that's really resisting it, doesn't want to do it because of some fear, loss or fear of more conflict or whatever it might be. So, so if I, I'm in that situation, what, what I will do is I will be checking in with myself and uh, acknowledge, yeah, I'm feeling fear about this, you know, and there's some resistance to doing this, you know. And, and like I said with my buddy, right, there was some fear that it might escalate into something bigger, right? And so there's some fear that arises out of that. And I make room for that. Making room means you're allowing yourself to have that fear. You know, it, it's, it's part of what your authentic experience is. You're not telling yourself a story that you shouldn't be afraid. Just dive in there, you know, and, you know, push that aside. No, you acknowledge that there's some fear there. But now you're working with your fear. You know, that's even before you get to the interaction. And so you're making room, you see that there's some fear, and then now you can begin to decide, okay, well, if this fear of conflict, um, you know, like, um, what am I gonna do with that fear? You know, maybe, maybe, um, uh, maybe there's just too much fear. Maybe it feels like the stakes are too high, and I'm not ready to go into it right now. Maybe I'll go into it later. That's a possibility, and sometimes that's wise, actually. We have to check in with ourselves to see maybe what the stakes are in the conflict and what's our level of vulnerability, how much can we tolerate in that particular moment in time. We might be feeling like everything is changing, and the last thing you want to do is get in conflict with your last ally or whatever it might be. So you just decide that, you know, just put it aside for a while, uh, whatever it might be. But now, you see what I'm saying is like now you're working with your history, but not automatically going where your history is telling you to go, which is, say, avoid the conflict. It's more like a, the objective detective work you were talking about. It, it really is. Sure, it is. But, but it's not, it's, it's not, you know, it, it's a combination of being mindful and really seeing what our feeling is, but then also checking in and discerning, you know, what feels to be the most skillful action to take in this particular situation. And that's not simple. Like there's no formula for that. Because I might have a fear of conflict in this one particular situation, but I might be able to just say, acknowledge it and still go ahead and do it. Your situation, the stakes might be higher or the fear might be greater. And so you might respond or act in a different way than I would. Um, so, you know, we're all individual that way. But, uh, but making room allows us to know what our experience is. It gives room for that experience. 
it's tremendously healing. For me, when I'm experiencing some kind of an emotion that's difficult, it's just profoundly healing to just say, okay, you know, can I make room for this feeling? Uh, you know, and then I'll, then, you know, I'll try to figure out what I need to do with it. But first, let's just make room for it and let me have my experience uh, rather than struggling with it. Because oftentimes when we get into these places, we start struggling right away with it. One way or the other, we try to get it resolved, we try to fix it, we try to get away from it. Uh, we, don't lo we don't want it. And we're getting involved in a real struggle. Rather than that, just saying, okay, this is, this is actually what's happening. It's like human. These emotions are human. Um, so that's kind of it, you know? It's, it's that process of checking in and seeing where you are, but also cultivating a more allowing attitude to what your experience is. And like I said, the, the places where we often get stuck is in the resistance. Um, that's where we get, you know, where we get kind of where we land often is there's resistance and that's where we end up. But, you know, in this practice, when we land in resistance to the experience, we want to see if we can make room for the resistance because the resistance needs to be understood. See, telling ourselves a story, well, we shouldn't have that resistance. That's not going to help us. Understanding the nature of that resistance or that aversion is going to free us of that aversion. It will disempower that aversion. Yeah, need the recorder, the mic. You can just, yeah. Oh, you have it? Okay, next, you'll get one next. Um, what I was going to say originally was, could you, instead of saying make room, could you use the word spaciousness? Yeah, yeah you can make space. Can I make space for this? Absolutely. Spaciousness. Yeah, sure. But from what you were just saying, I Words think don't, you know. I think that um, what making room allows you is to not react, but to give yourself time to respond. Right. Don't you exactly. think? Yeah, yeah. No. That's exactly it. Make space. That's what I said. Like with mindfulness or, yeah. or this attitude allows you to get close, but there's breathing room. There's not like you're not closing in around it. Uh, you know, there's no hidden expectation or agenda that this experience isn't supposed to be there. So when these emotions come up, if we make room for them, we're not telling ourselves that we shouldn't be having that experience. But you That's know, it's tricky because when you have intense reactions to these feelings, you kind of just, you know, go. I yeah. Mean, I do. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I, I agree. And it's I, hard. I mean, I, uh, yeah, it, yeah, it's not easy. Yeah. Um, you know, but again, if you're having a strong reaction, it's really important to be mindful yeah. of that. Yeah. Absolutely. There's going to be certain situations, like we were talking about in the restaurant, that can be quite provocative. And so we're going to react. Uh, and we get impatient or something, and then, you know, we can, something happens, and it can trigger even stronger anger. So that's, that's absolutely true. But, you know, the point is, is that practice is about what's unfolding from one moment to the next. Just, and oftentimes there's a yeah. sequence of reactions. It's just hard to catch yourself. Yes, it is. And open yes, the door is. for the room. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's why I'm still practicing. Yes, that's many, why many it's called a practice, later. right? Yeah, it's ongoing. But it's not joyless, you know. It, it's 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 good work because uh, it's a different way of living. You know, it's like you're living, and now you're really taking up the life and the conditions that you're encountering, and you're bringing some degree of interest. And in some ways, you know, people say, what's the significance of life? Well, when we're learning from our life and we're learning things that are really important, like 
freedom and peace and confidence in oneself and the ability to see clearly. Well, that, you know, that, that can bring you know, profound meaning e even in situations that um, don't seem inherently you know, that desirable. Uh, right up here in the front, the microphone. Yeah, good. Yeah, don't. We don't have to shut off the mic when we're done. So, all these examples seem to kind of like presuppose that you have an awareness of yeah. that you're dealing with whatever the emotion is at the moment, and it's. I feel like for me that so that's one thing. If I have awareness, I can try yeah. to make room. Yeah. But the having awareness yeah, is, is the problem. I like, agree. Like I keep kind of thinking of your example about the guy in the truck. So that might not necessarily be a thing that would cause a great problem for me. But if it were, and I let, and I pulled over to the side of the road, which clearly is like the smart thing to do. It's like, you know, situation is gone after that for me to do that means he wins <laughs> which means i lose yeah. which creates a whole new host of right. like yeah you know, the story of winners and losers and that right yeah then then i'm not just angry then i'm then i'm a loser too right so it's more like humiliating or something yeah i'm humiliated yeah well that that's but no but no i get what he's saying though and i i i i, I no, I, I, yeah, you know, I mean, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I'd have to say I was slightly annoyed that I had to pull off the side of the road, you know, I didn't think of myself as a loser, but I also didn't think, you know, that maybe I should have been in that position, you know, in other words, there should have been more awareness on the truck driver not to be barreling down on me. Uh, but I didn't really think of it in terms of winning and losing. I thought, it, uh, I realized that I was actually, it, when I pulled off the side of the road, I was like, you know, wow, why, do, why, do I have, why, why is things like this, you know, that I have to do this? Um, but then a uh, minute later, I realized, wow, good for you. You know, like you didn't get into that with them. And then, and then that, that felt like, oh, you know, I don't have to get into the win-lose thing. You know, and but, I, but I didn't even like. Mm -hmm. if I, as long as I'm ahead of him, yeah, you're winning. I'm, I'm winning. It's there's yeah. no there's no problem here. Yeah, I know. But then, well, there's a lot of you folks on the road, who <laughs> 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 are out trying to win, and and that truck driver's trying to win too. Right. You know, definitely. But I mean, he I knows keep, he can. I keep, that's where I keep going though. Like, it yeah, keeps I know. Becoming well, a I'm telling you, that, but, but I'm telling you, that's why we talk about the, you know gentle perseverance. You know, you got to be patient. I mean, that's what I'm talking about with the expectation. These are deeply ingrained habits. You know, win lose. I grew up, winning was everything. You know, in sports and things like that, it was always winning was what, and losing was you know humiliating. You know, and so you know we take that into the present moment. We take our history in the present moment, and some of us are deeply conditioned around win lose as a model, success or failure. You know, and, and so those things aren't going to necessarily disappear, but you know, basically by bringing awareness to it, we don't have to keep getting on that train because the win lose is suffering, frankly. And it can cause a lot of trouble. It really can. When we get into win-lose, that's, that's why sometimes like on the road, 
for instance, win-lose can be really deadly. You know, that, like road rage. Someone thinks they're losing. You know, they take it personally, you know, what this person's doing, and they get into it. But the, the win-lose thing is an interesting um, thing to begin to look, you know, to, to begin to see, um, you know, to begin to see the suffering in that. You know, to begin the suffering of that. I mean, there, there are situations that people are at a disadvantage, that's for sure, on this planet, and have nothing. And there's others that are privileged and have a lot. And um, you could say they're the winners, and those folks who are poor or don't have much are losers. But I don't see it that way. You know, I don't see them as losers, and I don't see the... I see different set of conditions for different people. And I also think there's a lack of fairness in that, you know, and that, that there's something wrong with that. Um, but I don't necessarily see it as winners or losers because... So how do you know when to compete, when it's not a competition? <laughs> there's this interesting, I'll tell you this little story that, I, that it's around competition. Uh, so I, I think you can have a healthy competition. It, it's, it depends on how much ego is involved in it. Um, it, because in other words, to compete might be just to take it as, you know, um, you know, a process to maybe elevate what you can do, you know, in, in develop skills or something in that, enjoy in that. But there was an experience when I was, I was first on staff in the uh, late 70s uh, up here at the retreat center at IMS, and there was uh, 11 of us on staff back then. Now, it's, of course, it's a big place. Um, and uh, I remember one summer, the first summer I came on staff, uh, this teacher who was going to do like a 30-day retreat, this teacher was supposed to lead a 30-day retreat in the summer, canceled the retreat at the last minute. So now I had just gotten there pretty much, and um, there was no retreat, which meant there wasn't a lot of work, which was nice, and it was the summer. So we started, you know, getting into trouble, doing stuff that, you know, like, you know, just human trouble, not like big trouble. But for instance, we, we started, uh, me and this buddy of mine, uh, we started uh, a very innocent, beautiful thing. Uh, we found some public tennis courts down Barry, downtown Barry. And I'd never played tennis before. I didn't grow up playing tennis. And um, so we started playing tennis. We really had fun. You know, it was great. You know, we were running around, sweating, and both of us were playing really hard and all that. And there was like a lot of joy in it. And then we would come back to the, the retreat center after that, and um, we would start telling people, and they could see that we were really having a great time. So then people started going down to the tennis court themselves. You know, we started playing doubles, and we started playing different, there was multiple courts, so we started playing. And then someone had this really brilliant, and I'm saying this sarcastically, brilliant idea to have a tournament, okay, a structured tournament. So that, you know, you know what tournaments look like, that model. So we had a tournament. And uh, the tone of the games really changed quite dramatically. Um, where, you know, pe people would start, like, celebrating their victories when they came back and joking with people and making fun of them and, you know, just stuff that's really awful. Uh, but we didn't know it because we really weren't aware of it. We were just getting caught up in our conditioning you know, around, you know, this whole prize. And there was even a prize at the end of this, some innocuous, stupid thing. 
a trophy and something, you know? It was ridiculous. So, but, so, mercifully, finally, the tournament ended. Nobody played tennis again. It, it just died. We just, we just never went down there again because we killed it, basically. Now, when, we, when me and my buddy were playing, we were playing hard, you know? And I wasn't playing to, to lose or something or, or, yeah, I missed it, you know? No, I'd be playing to try to do well. But there wasn't so much um, pride or invest, investment in the outcome, you know? It was more about joy enjoying our bodies and really getting out there and working at it and, you know, stirring up those energies, you know. Um, but once we formalized it and started creating this whole win-loss, people started getting into the ego stuff. And it really, literally, we were all happy when the damn thing ended. And we moved on. And so, just to show you how slow these habits die, this is the summer. In the winter, we started playing ping pong downstairs. <laughs> Again, there was a ping pong tournament that came up. Now I happened to win that one. <laughs> I still remember that. We did the same thing, the exact same thing. We got into this ping pong, we started playing. I hadn't played in years. We started playing, really getting into it. Then we made a tournament out of it, and then it died. When the tournament was over, we were done. Every once in a while, someone would go down, but there was really a lack of interest. We, we basically killed the joy out of it. So these, have, these are meditators. Oh yeah, we're, these are meditators. Many of them are Dharma teachers right now. <laughs> I'm sure they don't remember that. I have a memory like an elephant. I have a memory like an elephant, but some of them were t became teachers. Uh, but you know, it's just, and these are people who are practicing mindfulness. So, so the point is, it's not like you can't learn. It's just you have to be patient. And you know, learn when you can learn. And I'm sure, you know, I learned something, but it was afterwards. I realized that, yeah, you know, what happened there? And I looked at it, you know, with more discernment and realized that, you know, we kind of screwed it up, you know? And that's just the way it went. And it's not that we needed to be keep playing ping pong or any of that stuff, but it just showed you kind of what the human ego or our pride or our conditioning around winning and losing can infiltrate everybody at some point or another. Some people, it's more than others. And I think with some people, they feel like um, that uh, framework is very predominant. You know, it's very predominant, it can be very predominant in the work world, and it also gets reinforced, you know? I mean, I'm at a point where, when, like, if I watch sports or something, uh, I, you know, my team, I might want to win, right? But I really have evolved to the place where I hope whoever plays the better wins. And uh, I feel really bad about the losers, to be quite honest. Because, you know, for some people at different levels, losing is beyond painful. You know, it's, it's a lot of suffering. And to me, that's the um, underbelly of sports in some ways. It's just the stakes are too high, you know, for the, for the losers. It shouldn't be that way. Like the winners and losers, they all should win as much money, I think. So that even money isn't even a motivator. Just the, just the playing itself. I like what you just said, learn when you can learn. Yeah. I mean, well, literally, that's all we can do, right? You can't learn when you can't learn. So what we're doing is cultivating the ability to learn. That's what we're doing. You know, you can't know something that you don't know until you know it. 
but what we're doing is, and so that's where humility comes in, quite frankly. And the practice is, it, it, it encourages humility. And it, we, it's not humiliation, it's humility. It's recognizing that there's always something to learn. And that's not a problem with that. There's not a problem with the fact, I have no problem with the fact that I have lots to learn. And, you know, if I made an ego thing out of it, I could say, I could pretend that I don't, which would really be delusional, or I could uh, think I was a failure because I'm still learning. But that's ridiculous. It's understanding the process. There's always something to learn. You know, the, the hu human condition is challenging. And our minds are, they don't function right. You know, they, they, they're not inherently discerning. Um, they can become more discerning, but we have to cultivate the conditions and qualities in order to make them discerning so that we make wise choices because that's what we want to do. You know, that's how we want to spend our life, I'm sure, is make wise choices so that, um, you know, we're not always going up a dead-end street or a blind alley, you know. Okay. So I think we're ready for a bit of a break. I am. Like a, ah, so the sun is out. It, I'm sure it's balmy out there. Yeah. <laughs> it looks balmy, doesn't it, when you look out that window? So let's take a solid 15-minute uh, break, and some of us can go outside. I am. I'm going to get out in that sun. 15 minutes, and I'll ring the bell, and we'll be back. We'll start. We'll have a little short sit, and... Um, you know, dinner's coming up, but let's just take a little bit of a break. Be mindful, be silent. You know, just let me say one thing, though, which is, um, you know, there'll still be some more discussion time um, before, uh, you know, our workshop is over. And if you um, haven't had an opportunity to grab the mic, say what you uh, would like or ask what you like, uh, think about doing that if you want. If you're content, not, that's fine, too. But uh, I just want to encourage, make sure you, you uh, if you want to take the opportunity, I want to encourage you to do that. Uh, whatever it might be. It might be just making a comment or could be a question. Okay? Just keep that in mind. So, find a comfortable position, sitting up.
Why don't we do a little listening practice for the next few minutes? Keep coming back to the sounds.
You can keep listening or you can go back into your body again. Or if there's a particularly strong state of mind arising, see if you can make room for it. See if it's the characteristics of that state of mind is observable. In other words, taking it as an object of mindfulness. Otherwise, stay with your body or continue with the breathing. Continuing listening.
So dinner's in about five minutes. We'll meet back here at seven um, and we'll start with the sitting.